First Peter chapter four. We'll study verses seven through eleven this morning, um, with the hope that the Lord will speak to us and we'll learn uh, together. Just just as a matter of, uh, I want to communicate well. I, I want to remind you that um, it's never my intention to shock and awe you. Like I'm not here to uh, to like entertain at all, or uh, just tell you some good jokes or some good sayings and hope that um, the, the things that we talk about, you know, you'll find them useful. Useful at some point in your life, and then, um, and then once you find them useful, you'll say, "Well, Matt, Matt was a cool guy, and I'm so glad that he shared those cool little bumper sticker things, or whatever the case may be." Like, I, that's not my intention ever. I, I'm not here to say, "Hey, uh, surprise! Here's what God's word says." But instead, I wholeheartedly believe that um, you can study the Bible, and you can read ahead, and you can go ahead and assume what I'm going to preach. It's okay. Like, I'm not here to bring you new, like, new light to things. Uh, it's okay okay for you to study ahead or go back and reread and think uh, think through th- through those things. Uh, that's why I pray often, Lord, thank you for preserving your word that we might still have it today to, to learn f- from and to, to live by and to see how it reveals who you are, your character, but most importantly, the, the great story of salvation or redemption that's happening, how everything points to Jesus. And uh, the hope is the hope is that, that as you're as we're meeting together on Sunday morning, maybe you've already read ahead. Maybe you already know the whole story. And I'm just here to encourage you and remind you. Again, I'm not just uh, trying to shock and all you. I don't look at this as a time of, of entertaining or, or I want you to, to write down new thoughts. Wow, that's a great new thought. I want us to focus in on these ancient thoughts that have preserved people in faith for many generations now. Look at these ancient thoughts these ancient words from Christ, that though they may seem new today, they are not new. Though they are still living and active and can do a great work inside of us, uh, it's nothing new. It's nothing, uh, you know, a novel or, uh, hey, great, Matt just pulled this out of the air and it's a cool new thing. No, these are ancient words. And the hope is that we see them as that. Words that have been pre- preserved by God. Words that have been inspired, breathed out by God. And they are trustworthy. We can rely on them. They are useful for every portion of our life so that our lives can truly glorify glorify Christ. So that's my hope. So, so I don't ever want you to think, oh, Matt's got a new word for us you know, today or he's going to preach a new word for us. That's wrong. I will always preach to you an old word, an ancient word, one that has been preserved forever. And if I do preach something new to you, call me out on it. Say, that's from you. That's new. It has nothing to do with the Bible. Call me out on it. Hold me accountable to that. I hope you understand that. We all in agreement? Just give me a thumbs up if we are. Okay, cool. Uh, I'm not saying giggle Maggie's by any chance. Okay, sorry, Chase. Give me a guns up if you want. That's fine. too. Okay, all right. Sorry about that, Chase. Just want to clarify. Okay, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to study uh, the Word together again quickly here. Lord Jesus, thank you for preserving your Word, for keeping it for us for um, giving us faith to trust in it. God, I don't want anything that I say today to be in the way, but instead I want to uh, the things that are being said today to be your words, to penetrate into our heart. And God, where I have misinterpreted, please correct. God, where we try and justify our own actions, please correct and convict. 
And God, let our, let our lives be changed in this moment um, by your word for you so that we can see you at work. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Think back to this letter, 1 Peter, that's been, that's been, that has been written to these exiled, sojourning Christians, this royal priesthood, these people belonging to God. And when the letter, when they received the letter in the mail or through Pony Express or Camel Express or whatever the case may have been, when they received this letter, uh, think about these suffering Christians. I want to remind you that the fiery trials that they were going through quite possibly were literal fiery trials, being burned at the stake, being martyred for their faith. They were going through some trying, suffering times. And they received this letter from, from their elder, from, from Peter, who's been discipling them, preaching to them, teaching them about God's words, r- reminding them, leading them, the, them in the way everlasting. And they received these words, not in a grand building, not in a organized, necessarily, Sunday morning service, not in great organized pews, not with great speaking skills. They receive these in a home, a safe haven, a harbor where they've gone to to refresh one another and encourage one another and remind one another that Christ truly is Lord and He's truly worthy of living for, giving up everything for. So they received this letter from Peter to encourage them, to remind them not to give up, to continue with their faith in Christ, to to continue in their faith in the resurrection, to continue in their faith of this living hope that Christ truly, truly is. They received this not just on a Sunday morning and say, wow, that was some, some good words. Now we can live for the rest of the week. I knew a man once, and if you've said this here, I'm not talking about you, but you may have said the same thing, and I've also said the same thing. I go to church on Sunday morning just to receive something that hopefully will get me through the rest of the week. Now that's a great thought. It is a great thought. But it's not reality. It wasn't reality for these Christians. They didn't go just to grab something that would get them through the rest of the week. They needed something that would sustain their life. They needed to hear that their life, that they're living, that had been rescued by Christ, was truly rescued by Christ, and they could continue to walk in that newness of life. They needed to hear words that wasn't just going to get them through the week, but would sustain every moment, like I mentioned to you, like our Brazilian translator, all the moments. They needed to hear about Christ who came to sustain them, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of a sinful, broken world, even in the midst of fiery trials, is Christ truly, truly worth it? And that's what we hope today. It's not a one-time generation thing, like, well, these are good words, and we're studying them, and praise be to the Father that we're not those Christians, that we're not exiles, that we're not sojourners. No, this word is to all of us. This is words, we believe this to be words from God, to be given even to us today to remind us that we are sojourners. If we've been rescued by Christ, we are sojourners, exiles. This is not our home. We are temporary residents. I went with my parents. They are in that time of life where they're deciding to uh, 
how they're going to spend their uh, golden years, 60s and 70s and 80s. And so they bought a travel trailer. And uh, so I helped them to haul that back home yesterday. And uh, all of the conversations and then the silence and then the what have we done, what are we doing, we're crazy, all those things. And I said, quite literally, you are making yourselves temporary residents. You got your home on wheels now. Uh, your home is now tr mobile, travel. Tr you can travel. You're nomadic. You no longer belong to one place. Now, they still have their residence there in the great city of Colorado City, Texas. Uh, they still have their residence there. But the thought there, this, that we don't belong to this place. We have a greater residence. And Peter is reminding the folks of that. We read last week and we ended in verse 6 last week. We ended this conversation that, that Peter begins talking about suffering. You know, how suffering can shape our lives. It can make us bitter and jaded or sin. How Christ has saved us from sin, redeemed us from that. For us no longer to live in, in that way. And Peter even pointed out some of the sins that were uh, really relevant or, or seen a lot within the culture of the Gentiles that they were living around. And he said, hey, we don't want you to be marked or shaped by these, these sins. We want your life to be different. And he ends with judgment, knowing that those who remain in sin will be judged. And we need to know that today, too. We need to know that those remaining in sin will be judged according to their sin. Sin separates us. Sin leads us to death. And if we remain in sin, walking in sin, living in sin, judgment is what awaits us. But the good news is that those who have been redeemed by Jesus will be judged not according to our sins, but instead according to judged according to the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. The payment that he has paid for us. That our debts have been paid in full because of the sacrifice that he has made. And Peter is reminding Christians of that. Hey, redeemed folks. Hey, royal priesthood. Hey, exiles. Hey, those people belonging to God. Those being adopted by Christ. That you have been redeemed and your judgment is based upon the sacrifice of Christ. So no longer live in the former way of life like those who are still remaining under sin, but instead live according to the Spirit. Live life according to Christ living through you, a life redeemed by, by Christ. We, though, get stuck in verses 5 and 6 often. We get stuck here. We get stuck in the judgment. Maybe you are a guilt-ridden person, and all you can think about is that you will someday be judged. And, oh, I can't stand the thought of someday I will be judged. Or maybe you're not a guilt-ridden person. Maybe you're just a judgy per person. And you just like to judge. And so you mostly stay in the judgment scene because all you want to do is judge others. And let's be honest with one another this morning. It's fun to judge. When I stop at a stoplight in Hobbs, New Mexico, I judge the people next to me. When my truck is full of mud, you and on the, on the outside, you, Gerald, you judge me for not washing my truck. Right, Gerald? Like, clean your truck, Matt. Clean it. needs to be. We, we often get stuck in this judgment world. And I think the reason why we do is it's beca because it is so much fun to point out the sins of others. It's the part that we love doing because we get to prove our righteousness. See how right I am, Brian? See how wrong you are? We love to do that. I love to do that to Mandy. 
And then I'm convicted of how wrong I am and when I do that. And she convicts me gently because she's full of grace and mercy. Continue to pray that she would continue to be full of grace and mercy, okay? Let's continue that, Mandy. I said that in front of everyone, hoping that they'll hold you accountable, okay? There's a pride in us, an excitement in us, an excitement about, hey, sinners, you're going to be judged. We want that. We want that. But that's not what Peter or Christ, it's not where he says to stop or stay stuck. The church, I think, spends the majority of our time focusing on judgment, particularly the verdict. And we don't spend enough time focusing on the righteous judge. We want ourselves to be the one giving judgment. We want ourselves to be the one offering the verdict. We want to have everyone in the world judged correctly, but we want to be the judge. And that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. The good news of the judgment of sin is that Christ has paid it. That there is a righteous judge who can judge correctly and righteously, who can judge in a holy way. And like we've said um, uh, you know, many sermons ago, praise God that at an adoption hearing where the judge should say, you're not worthy of being adopted, doesn't stop there. The judge, the righteous judge says, I'll pay your sins, I will adopt you, and yes, I am the righteous judge, but now I will become your loving father. Stepping down from the judge stand, off the throne, welcoming you into my arms and adopting you as sons and daughter into my family, though you aren't deserving of that. Praise God for that. In my prayers, in my personal prayers, Lord Jesus, thank you. You could have stopped at righteous judgment, and you would know that I would be condemned to hell and separated from you for eternity. But yet you don't. Instead, you step down, take my place, forgive me of my sins, and adopt me as a son into your family. Church, we represent that. We should move the conversation. Yes, judgment of sin needs to be talked about. But if we're going to preach the gospel, let's not stop there. Let's continue and move that conversation to who the righteous judge is. The gospel message is not about protecting yourself. It's not about making yourself right. But instead, it's about saying, I'm denying self. The gospel message says it's not about me, and it's all about Christ. And so when Peter moves from 6 to 7, he's saying, don't get stuck in judgment. Don't get stuck in judgment. Instead, let's move to the end times. Verse 7, 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. I love uh, many of the commentators that I read on this all said the same thing. Like there's a commonality between all the commentators. They all said you picture the man or the woman standing on the street corner with the sign that says the end is near. This is Peter. He's standing with the cardboard sign that's saying the end is near. Give me a couple of bucks because I'm hungry or whatever the case may be. Peter brings the attention to the, to the church. The end is near. Think about it in context of these sojourners, of these exiles. Literally, quite literally, for many of them, the end of their suffering was truly near. Not because, we think of, not because we're thinking of suffering in an earthly way, that the Lord might remove their earthly suffering away from them, but because Christ, in His rescuing them from sin, 
also rescued them from this broken world by allowing their lives to be martyred for His sake. Many of them hearing these words, the end of all things is at hand. They didn't know that maybe moments away, minutes, days, weeks away, their life would truly be taken from this earth and they would be now basking in the glory of Christ forever in heaven. They had no idea, as Peter is writing this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the end of things is at hand. I mean, think about that. How many times have you thought of that just in the recent days? Is the end going to happen? What is the end? When will it happen? And Christian, how many times, church, how many times do we get stuck even in that? The church is stuck in figuring out judgment. And the church is stuck in figuring out when the end will happen. Do you know why? My opinion is because we think we can control those things. We can control judgment. We can make judgment about ourselves. So we get stuck there because we think we can control all that. We want to control. We want to have power over all that. And the same with the end. If I know when the end is, then surely my life will be different. Martin Luther was asked one time, Hey, Martin Luther. I don't know how they addressed him. Hey, Martin Luther. If the end of your life is tomorrow, what will you do today? And his response was so funny, I think, and so real. Today, I will plant a tree and pay my taxes. And the idea there is, Martin Luther was getting to the point of, I will continue to do the same things that I've been doing with the hopes that I'm always living as if the end is at hand, knowing that the day is approaching when Christ will return or the end of my life on this earth and I'm taken up to heaven with God will happen. I'll let every day be shaped by the end is at hand. And Peter is saying these same things. So think about this for a moment. I love that John Piper points this out. He points out 2 Peter 3.8. See, there were a group of Christians and a group of Gentiles who began to question these exiles. You keep saying that Christ is going to return. You keep saying that the world is going to be different. You keep talking about a new heaven and a new earth. Yet, we still walk through this brokenness. So when will the end come? And in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Christians were discouraged. Is Christ really going to come back? They keep telling us that that he's not. Is he really going to come back? And when will that happen? And Peter writes this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And John Piper points out, if this is the case, and if this is true, then it's only been two days since Christ has been resurrected from the grave. Though it seems like an eternity... Even in the midst of, or most, maybe mostly in the midst of suffering, it seems like an eternity. But with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. So we have to live life in light of eternity, in light of the end drawing near. And if this is the case, and we are exiles, sojourners, We are a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. What should our lives look like today? And Peter then says, don't get stuck in judgment and don't get stuck consuming your life in when will the end happen or when is that day approaching, but instead do these five things. The end of times are here, so therefore here's what you should be doing. Verse 7, the end of all things is here, is at hand, so therefore. Therefore, go home, lock your doors, hide your husbands, hide your kids, lock everything, put your alarm on, load your gun, 
Keep yourself holy because at some point Christ is going to return. No, that's not what he says at all. In fact, what he says is a different urgency, church, even than what Southern Baptists often say. Yes, we need to be making disciples. Yes, we need to be proclaiming the message across the world. But it seems as if here Scripture is telling us that the end of things is at hand. And so live with urgency these five things. Therefore, be self-controlled or have sound judgment. Well, where is Peter pulling these out from? Well, there's a stark contrast here between the sinful ways of the Gentiles that were evident among those living in Asia Minor and the difference in the life that these Christians should be living. Remember, as we pointed out, as Peter pointed out, some of the sins in verse 3, uh, these these people, these Gentiles, these people remaining and living in sin, their life was not self-controlled or living of sound judgment. In contrast, they were living in sensuality and passions of the world. But I know what your question is this morning, or I'm assuming I know what your question is. Can anyone really be self-controlled? And didn't Christ tell us to deny self? Well, remember, as Christians, as people belonging to God, we are abiding in Christ. And when we abide in Christ and we are attached to the vine, the hope is that we begin to produce fruits of the Spirit. And one of those fruits of the Spirit is that we would be self-controlled, that we would be having sound judgment, that we would be denying self or sinful practices, uh, fleshly ways, and we would then be living according to what Christ desires of us, connected to Him, abiding in Him, and Him producing out of us what He desires from us. The passions, the control, the things that He wants to put on display for the world to see so that He can be glorified. That's what He wants to produce from us. Uh, The Greek thought here is that, um, that the same thing that happens at our house on Tuesdays is what we would be doing with selfish passions or uh, unsound judgment. On Tuesdays, on our street, it's trash days. So we move the trash cans. Uh, it's a group uh, group effort. Most of the time it's Emily, but we all try and help all, often. We move the trash cans from where they are on the side of the house to the curb, saying, this is garbage. Please take it away. That's the Greek picture here, that we don't want to be living in garbage anymore. We want to move the garbage to the curb. We want to push passions, sinful fleshly passions to the curb. Please take them away. Let me be living in the self-controlled or a Christ-controlled life, no longer according to the passions of this world. Remember, those passions of the Gentiles, they were controlling them. They were controlling every, every relationship that they had. They were controlling every thought that they had. They were controlling their work, their pleasure. Everything that they were doing were controlled by passions of sinful flesh. Why? Because they were not and have not been redeemed by Jesus. If you have been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us, if we've been bought with a price, we are no longer belonging to ourselves. That our body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. Lord, live in me. A place that you are, a, a suitable dwelling place for you to live. Come and make camp inside of me. That you might live inside of me and then flow out of me. That people may see you and be glorified. This is why fasting and prayer are a vital part of Christian life. Peter moves on to this in just a moment. 
It's a vital part of Christian life because it tells us when we're praying to God, God, we are weak and we cannot do this on our own. We want to be dependent upon you. Fasting leads us to this. Lord, I want to do away with these things or do without these things for a time to show you that those things will not, will not overpower me. They will not control me. Instead, I want to use this time to see I want, I want to be controlled by you and by you alone. Peter moves on to say, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. For the sake of your prayers. Sober-minded. It's a contrast. Remember, the Gentiles were, were living lives of drinking parties and drunkenness. They were not sober-minded. They were being controlled. Their minds and their, their actions were being controlled by something else. They were not calm. They were not in their right mind. They were not wary or cautious or understanding of their surroundings. Instead, they were being controlled from the inside out by something they put from the outside in to control their lives. And we, on the opposite side of that, who have been rescued by Christ, are saying, nothing inside of me can be good. Something outside of me must come inside of me and make me good so that I might glorify Christ. How does that happen? I'm preaching the gospel to you this morning. But how does that happen? Only through Christ. Christ coming from where he was seated down to where we are, coming inside of us, inside the cup as he preached in parables, to clean the inside of the cup first so that the outside may truly resemble what has happened inside. For us too. We should be pleading with the Lord. Lord, let us be sober-minded. Let us be wary of our surroundings, not fearful necessarily of being tainted by the sin of this world, but instead pleading with the Lord, Lord, guard our hearts. Make us calm, make us aware, make us cautious of the evil one. Make us cautious in understanding of sin and temptation, but pleading desperately to the Lord. Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Lord, guard my heart. Why, Peter says, for the sake of your prayers, for the sake of your communication, for the sake of your fellowship with Christ. Be of sound judgment. Be clear or sober-minded. Lord, let my mind and my life be rooted in you and nothing else, especially sin, so that even my prayers are not hindered. Husbands, remember from chapter 3, verse 7, Husbands, honor your wife as the weaker vessel so that your prayers may not be hindered. Whoa, how convicting is this? Christians are to be self-controlled and sober-minded so that even in our spiritual conversations with the Lord. They are not hindered. We want to be controlled, absolutely controlled, by Christ and Christ alone. And can I just say this to you as a moment of realness, hashtag true confession here. I can preach this and it is real easy to preach. And the words are really flowing out of my mouth right now. And you need to know that it's easy, easy, easy to preach and so much more difficult to truly walk in. And this is why the church is needed. This is why Christ gives us the church to hold us accountable and to walk together in. That we might remind each other, hey, be sober-minded. Hey, be self-controlled. Yes, deny the sinful passions of this world, the fleshly passions of this world, and let Christ control you. This is where the church works together and reminds us of these things. It's, it's interesting that when we do suffer or when we're going through trials, in those moments of weakness is when we're least sober-minded. Is when we're at least 
self-controlled. Sin and suffering makes us focus on the things uh, that we shouldn't be focusing on, and our mind gets so crazy, full of a, of mess or whatever, and we're in need of others to point us, to pray for us, to hold us accountable, so that we might have clear minds, and thus might glorify Christ. Remember, Peter is talking about the end times here. This is what we should be doing in the end times. And that makes sense. Don't get drunk. Don't be controlled by your uh, fleshly desires. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. And then he makes his statement in verse 8. He says the words, the two words, above all, which translated from the Greek is the phrase above all. Above all, remember again, this is the end He's saying the end is approaching. And above all, here's what you should be about. If we're to ask you this morning, tomorrow, take from Martin Luther, tomorrow's your last day, what's your above all things? What will you be doing? Here's what Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love can cover a multitude of sin. That sounds like somebody who's not sober-minded. That sounds like somebody who is self-controlled. Like, yeah, absolutely. Peter, we get it. We're suffering. We're in need of love at this moment, right? Yeah, for sure we're suffering. But you're saying above all? Before all? The end is at hand, and this is what we should be, this is what our lives should be marked by? Where is Peter, where is Peter coming up with this bold statement? The end is coming. The brokenness of the world is evident. Christians are being martyred for their faith. Some may read these words or hear these words and be murdered within the week. Some of them may be suffering so much that they want to just give up. Some of them may not see an end of suffering in sight. And some of them may think that their sinful state is just perfectly fine. And so Peter tells them, he tells them that above all, love one another, love one another earnestly, not to give up on those things. Where is this coming from? Why is Peter talking about this no conditions, no boundaries, no limits type of love? Well, this is not the way the world lives. Contrast this with the Gentiles. Uh, when Peter points out some of their sinful ways, he points out their lustfulness. See, the world lives according to earthly passions and lustfulness. He's saying that a Christian's life will be marked not by lust, but by love. Peter says, no, Christian... Be shaped not by sinful passions of this world, but instead be shaped by love. Peter goes on to say that love should be an earnest love, a love that's full of fervor, a love that is extending as far as it can go, stretching you to the, the, the weakest point of you, that you're going to be at maximum potential, being stretched out as far as you can go. Peter says a Christian in the end times, they're above all life, should be a life completely loved out. What's wrong with you today? Well, I'm just so exhausted. What are you exhausted from? Chasing kids? No, from loving. And it is exhausting. Where did you reach maximum potential? The Greek word actually uh, gives us the uh, where we get our word uh, tension or, or uh, oh my goodness, what are these things called? Uh, hmm. What is it? Tendons. Who said that? Thank you, smart people. This is what it is. Tension or tendons. This is where we get our word from. That um, that we're going to love without slack. That we're holding on to one another. That there's no slack in the line. There's no. There's always a tension. We're we're never letting. We're never letting up. This is what 
Peter is saying, Christians, in the last time, above all things, this is what you should be, this is what you should be doing. Why? Why isn't he saying something different? Above all, go judge the people. Well, here's why, I think. Because remember the last conversation Peter had, one of the last recorded conversations that Peter had with Jesus? As he's eating breakfast, a great fish breakfast, by the way. That's what fishermen should do, right, Josh? This great fish breakfast, and Jesus asked Peter some really hard, convicting things. Peter, do you love me? Well, of course. Remember, Jesus is saying, Peter, do you agape me? Of course, I phileo you. I love you like a brother, Jesus. What is Jesus' response? Go and judge my sheep. Peter, do you agape me? Of course I phileo you, Jesus. If that's the case, go and judge my sheep. No one's corrected me yet. Waiting for you. Peter, do you agape me? Of course, you know. And I'm getting angry that you keep asking me this, Jesus. Yes, you know it. If that's the case, then go and judge my sheep. No, that's not what he said. Not at all. He said, feed the sheep. We get stuck in the judgment, church. We get stuck in the judgment. Peter is reminding us, no, we don't get stuck in the judgment. We don't get stuck in trying to figure out when the end times are. Instead, we get stuck We get stuck in loving fully, extending our lives out, and loving one another. Paul said, I'm going to pour my life out as a drink offering. I'm going to let love shape me. He says in Philippians chapter 2, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And the crazy thing is here, and I don't even understand this fully, you can teach me. I'm I'm open to that. Peter says, above all, keep loving one one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. John Piper goes on to say that every family, including church family, is in need of two major things. And without these things, the church and neither the family can survive. And those two things are love and forgiveness. We, through the blood of Jesus, as those who are being redeemed by Christ, have been forgiven by him. We belong to him. This is why Paul calls us saints. We have been forgiven by him. Our sins removed. This is why Peter says that we are a royal priesthood. We can't be royal. We can't be a royal priesthood, a holy people belonging to him, if it's up to, if it's up to us alone. But because of Christ, we can be forgiven. Because of his love for us, by the way. And then we as the church show that it motivates us to love one another fully. And I'll end with these things that he says here. Show hospitality to one another with grumbling, without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So he mentions these things. Self-controlled, sober-minded, loving, showing hospitality, and serving one another. We must do these things. I'll remind you again about our hospitable Savior who's welcoming us into his home. Though we are not deserving of that, welcoming us, saying, yeah, I know you're not worthy, but yet I will make you worthy by the own sacrifice that I will provide, and I will welcome you into my home. And then I love that Peter ends this with this serving one another with the gifts that we have. Church, we are the body of Christ. We are here to serve one another well. You don't have jobs in the church. Instead, you have gifts to be used in the church. We're not looking to 
add more professions in the church. We're looking just to recognize the gifts that the Lord has given us and use those to serve one another. Personally, I'm tired of the church looking outside of the church for help. Well, the church can't help me with mental health or parenting or the list could go on and on. That is not a picture of the early church. The church depended upon one another, served one another, in suffering stood by one another. The church could not have survived in this broken world without the use of Christ's church. And it's the same way today. We don't just gather here to prop ourselves up and to boast in our gathering, but instead we gather because we won't, we cannot survive, we cannot persevere in faith without one another. We have found ways to live outside the church. We have found ways to not need the church. Sure, we might meet weekly together, but we still look for outside sources to help to help us. In my hometown, I grew up with a man that had two prosthetic arms with hooks on the ends that he used. He lost them while saving his sister who was being electrocuted. He lost them at an early age. They were younger when it happened, and so he lived most of his life with these prosthetic arms. And as, uh, as technology progressed, his arms progressed as well. And though he was able to function in all of life, he could drive, he could eat, he could live, when you saw him, you knew something wasn't right. Sure, he could function, and he could make do. Sure, he could get through the week, but it was obvious that something wasn't right. My grandpa at a young age lost uh, all the fingers on his left hand. And when you look at him as a child, and he tells you that he lost them by picking his nose, you don't pick your nose, number one, but you know something is not right. And though he doesn't have prosthetics on his fingers, to, he, is, he has survived through life. And he's made do. But it's obvious that something isn't right. Church, I feel like that we are living this way too. That we're just making do. Well, church is just kind of making do. And people look at the church and say, we understand that the body of Christ, maybe some regards, we, we understand they keep calling themselves the body of Christ. But why are there so many prosthetics? Unfortunately for, for some of us, it's because we had a thumb that wasn't acting the way that we thought that they should act. We became the judge and we cut them off. We said, hey, you don't belong here. You're tainted. Instead of loving them in the biblical way and showing them and pointing them and going through the, the right steps of, of uh, accountability, saying, hey, we want to point you so that you walk in, no longer in sin, but walk in holiness. Yeah, there's a point to cut off the thumb. Sure. But do we even get to that point? Do we begin with, not out of love, but do we begin with judgment and cut off? When Paul talks about the church being the body, just like Peter here, he says this in Ephesians chapter 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we, gr- we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint which is equipped when each part is working properly. Recognizing the gifts, Peter says, the gifts that we have, and using those to serve one another. And when this happens, Paul goes on to say to the church in Ephesus, the end of verse 16, when this happens, when the body is working properly, it makes the body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. 
When we are serving one another with the gifts that the Lord has given us, and I'm not just talking about on Sunday morning, but also Sunday night when you're at your house, or Monday morning when you're at work, or when you're in the hospital, or when you're stuck in your home with the flu, or when your kids have exhausted you so much and you just need someone to stand beside you. The church, using the gifts that the Lord has given us to serve one another. Paul and Peter both say, when this happens, the church being built up, being built up together, become a healthy church that then glorifies Christ. I'll end with this. In the midst of suffering and sin in a broken world that we live in, the church, the church of all places is the place where love and hospitality and service should rule. Sin does not have a place in this place to rule. Suffering doesn't rule over us. Sickness doesn't rule over us. Christ rules over us. That's why we sing about our King. Christ rules over us. He is our Savior, and He rules over us. And it's the reason why Peter ends this statement with, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Church, when Paul says this, and when Peter calls us the oikos, or the family being built up as living stones together, And Paul says when this is happening in Ephesians chapter 4 and the church is working together and we are being built up together, Peter uses the word oikos, the Greek word oikos, a family being built up together. And Paul uses a same derivative of the word, oikodome, which means a suitable place for the dwelling of God. What is a suitable place for the dwelling of God in the midst of suffering? in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of the end times. What is a suitable place? The church is the suitable place because people belonging to God recognize that we belong to God, that He has forgiven us, that love rules over us through Jesus. And we allow these five things to shape our daily life. Let's pray. Lord, help us this morning to respond wholeheartedly to You. Not because, God, we want to boast in ourselves, But Lord, because you are worthy, and only you are worthy. We want to show you honor and glory in that. So God, in this time of of response, Lord, we, we ask that you would continue to speak to us, convict us. God, those living in sin, God, I pray that they would plead to you for forgiveness. Trust in our Savior Jesus. Confess their sins and turn away from those things. God, that we might trust in you and you alone. God, as a church, would you would you refresh us? God, would you point us in the right direction? God, will you use the church as you desire to use the church to love, to forgive, to love earnestly, to be self-controlled, to be sober-minded, to be using the gifts that you've given us to serve one another and thus being built up into a suitable place for your dwelling. God, speak to us this morning and let us respond in obedience to you and to you alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.